In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Aaron Lammer. This week, we are running a rerun. I was uh, told by my manager, Max Linsky, that I should pick one of my favorite interviews that I've done over the last few years. So I picked this one. It's with Nicholson Baker. I first came across Nicholson Baker through his novels, like The Mezzanine, but I had him on to talk about a nonfiction book he wrote, basically examining uh, whether chemical weapons had been used in the Korean War as uh, the American troops retreated. This happened to coincide with a lot of stuff that was happening around the possibility that the coronavirus, or uh, COVID-19 rather, had emerged uh, from a lab in Wuhan, which is not a topic that I have a particular opinion on, but uh, Nicholson had some things to say about it. Later, uh, I noticed that he wrote a cover story for New York Magazine, which I thought was an incredible piece of serendipity after this podcast. But I later found out that the article was actually commissioned by someone who had heard him talking about it on this podcast. I love it when uh, this show can manifest actual writing out in the universe. So that's why I'm picking this rerun. Uh, me with Nicholson Baker. Welcome, Nicholson Baker. Well, thank you, Aaron Lammer. I am so happy to be on your show. Um, When I read your first book, The Mezzanine is your first book, is that right? Yeah. That's my first book, yeah. I read it when I was in college in a fiction course. Mm, That's nice. Uh, What was it? (laughs) Uh, It was at Wesleyan University. I actually believe my co-host, Max Linsky, may also have been in this English course with me, which shows you how long we've known each other. And I remember thinking, how did he think of this many things, this many thoughts? He must have had a system to log all of these thoughts. And I thought actually sort of the same thing when I read your new book, Baseless, which also is a journey through many things that you read, foyed, and thought about. So I'm curious over the course of your career, how you store the things that you might want to use later and how you think about that task. What a lovely question. And I I now delightfully tap dance back to 1986, 1985, 1984. I had two methods back then. One was a back of the penguin paperback method. So I would have an idea I was working, you know, various offices. First, I was an oil industry analyst in New York, and I wrote an escalator to the mezzanine. The offices were on the mezzanine, so that's why the book is called The Mezzanine. And, you know, it was my first job, real job out of college. Had a briefcase, had cut my hair short, had more hair. And the guy, as I walked in, said, hello, Mr. Baker. You know, it was a whole different world. And But I had a usually had a penguin paperback in my briefcase and I would try to read it over lunch hours you know I would read it five paragraphs and finish a piece of pizza and a, a can of grapefruit juice and hurry back to the office but sometimes things would occur to me you know let's say with pizza with that feeling how do you fold a piece of pizza to keep the structural integrity and the, you know what about the cheese grease and all that so I would make a note in the back of the penguin paperback so that was one method is just make a note and then over time, I would go through my somewhat battered, briefcase-worn, but not necessarily red paperbacks, and expand on those thoughts. You know, build a paragraph. Let it flow. Let's see how it unpacks. Where does, 
you know, sort of like when you open an RV and there's a side window that you didn't know about and the flaps can unzip and so that. Then the other method and the most useful over time was the shirt pocket note method. Um, let's see if I have any here. I tried to clean myself up for this <laughs> interview, so I don't have my shirt pocket. But shirt pocket notes were very useful. You fold an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper into the size of something that slips in your shirt pocket. And it's like those little origami things you made. And you can write on all different facets of it. So I would write the date and I write an idea that I had and stuff. And and this thing would live in my pocket sometimes for months. And then sometimes I'd have three or four shirt pockets going at the same time. So that was that method. Neither of those methods do I use nearly as much now. I have a whole bunch of new methods. And we do we need to get... I, I don't know how much people need... This is way TMI kind of... Well, I'm curious about when that aggregation of shirt pocket notes or whatever your current system is <laughs> when do you look at it and say this is a book this is an article mm. versus this is something that i will log and take to the grave with me and never share with anyone else i think it's important to do that kind of writing by the way the the writing that you take to the grave is useful writing because it's nice to have little secrets and nice to have things that you're just doing because you want to write the best thing you or the truest thing that you possibly can write. And whether or not it ends up being publishable doesn't matter. What is that moment when it seems as if it's a thing, if as if a publishable chunk or sphere or kind of swarm of facts and observations and opinions it's a snowball when is that moment reached it is usually when i think i've got a theory i've got an idea i've got something there's something that nobody knows you know there's this nobody knows that it may be small maybe trivial and it may be on the periphery of what i'm saying but nobody knows it and and therefore it's a way in it's a bit of outline strangeness that will reawaken this topic that will rescue this topic from the tedium of having been written about before and will make it give it a new saturated color kind of an edge a peter max kind of edge or something so the feeling the fun of it is to come up with something that really does feel unexpected surprise is what we look for in writing and music everything more than any other thing surprise beauty and startlement conjoined you know so if you have a few things that seem a little startling then you know it feels as if you're on your way and that's what i sort of try to make a little pile of those things and take a look at them every so often when you spoke about things that no one else knows that's sort of an interesting description of FOIA itself, uh, <laughs> the uncovery of facts which would otherwise never be uncovered in many of these cases. So you were chasing the question of, did the U.S. government use biological weapons in Korea? And there are many sidesteps and detours along the route. But it feels almost to me as if if you did not pursue this line of inquiry, it was unlikely that someone else was going to, at least with the robustness uh, with which you attacked it. What is the nature of a quest like that, where you're kind of the only detective on the case? I mean, I know other people have written books about it, but it's not necessarily like Who Killed JFK, where there's a cottage industry of people who are trying to decode the government documents. Sure. Well, I got into it because I came across this book in the library by two guys, Canadian guys, Ned Hagerman, Stephen Endicott. They were both historians at the University of York in Toronto. And I started reading their book and they listed all these diseases that the United States had worked on. And it seemed as if what they had done was kind of an amazing thing. It just happened that in the late 80s, a whole gigantic mound of U.S. government documents were declassified as part of another project. And they 
were the first to go through this entirely unknown horde of secrets. And they did, a, I thought, a very impressive job of trawling through it and making sense of it. Thousands and thousands of pages of documents, mainly the records of this one small government group that did something called Project Baseless, hence the title, and were looking into ways to accelerate the American biological warfare weapons development program and develop a, quote, capability at the earliest possible date. So that was the thing that they were writing about for the first time. This small group of people whose job was to cheerlead for biological and chemical weapons right in the Pentagon. I read it. I was fascinated, totally engrossed. And there was a particular disease that they talked about, the U.S. government being interested in, coccidioidomycosis. My grandfather was a pathologist of fungal diseases. And I knew about coccidioidomycosis, very difficult word to say and to spell and to even think about. Lesions in the lungs, terrible thing. Uh, agricultural workers get it. Dust is breathed in. It's a lifelong affliction sometimes. And the germ warriors in the 50s in Washington wanted to make it a weapon. And that just, you know, forget whether it was used or not. What fear, what strange deviation of humanity would lead people to think that it was a good idea to take this chronic problem that agricultural workers have in breathing dust and getting fungal infections in their lungs and crank it up, turn the dial so it's a worse disease, more infectious, more aerially spread, and weaponize it. What kind of context, political context, would give rise to that? That's what led me to want to read about what I call the germ-drunk phase of American history. And that was more than 10 years ago, and it was hard book to write because it was depressing and it was it taught me things I didn't want to know. <laughs> and I'm just so glad and relieved that it's done. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's 
S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This isn't the first time you've taken on a topic where someone along the way says, hey, you're going to really piss some people off with this topic. Uh, There's going to be some people who are vehemently against not simply your attitudes, but also just the line of inquiry itself is an offense to certain people. That was certainly the case with Human Spoke, your book about pacifism in the years leading up to World War II. I think even you wrote an article in Harper's about algebra, arguing that algebra ought not to be a mandatory part of high school. Extremely Algebra 2. Algebra 2. Extremely controversial topic, it turns out, that many math teachers and mathematicians feel strongly about. So when you're in that terrain, how do you write in that environment? And how does that affect how you research and talk about the topic? You know, it's so true and so frustrating to think that I am drawn to some of these things that have caused me a lot of grief, actually. I guess, you know, with the mezzanine, with Room Temperature, with you and I, Fox, the Vermont, those were all books, one of them nonfiction, that were essentially about the positive, joyous, blissful moments of life. I mean, what is better than riding an escalator, after all, in the gleaming lobby of a building and you've got a coffee, you know, and it's great and life is good and you're employed and and somebody says, hello, Mr. Baker, to you when you walk. I mean, and then the book about feeding a baby, there's a book about Updike and why is he good and why is he a mean-spirited person and all. And then some sex books comes in. And somewhere along the way, though, there was this other feeling in me, which is, you know, not all of life is ecstatic, blissful, joyous. There are these things. There's these impediments to human happiness, you know. And I am a guy who is deeply in favor of the pursuit of happiness. The first thing that really hit me, actually, was I'd been writing some journalism for The New Yorker about the history of the movie projector, and I wrote a piece about punctuation for the New York Review of Books, which are both still on the blissful side, right? But then some librarians came to me and said, there's a, oh no, I know, I found out that all these card catalogs were being tossed out all over the country because there were these newfangled online catalogs, and although I liked the online catalogs in some ways, the card catalogs were the history of that library. So I wrote this very long, way too long piece for The New Yorker. And Deb Garrison, who was my editor, did an amazing job of cutting it down. And I was so unhappy, which, you know, is always true. You get cut down expertly, expertly. And it hurts so bad because all of those little pieces, you can actually see them kind of saying, I'm melting, I'm dying, you know, the pieces are going away. And what's left is a much better piece. (laughs) And that was a grievance thing. This bad thing is happening. You don't know about it. It may seem trivial. All these card catalogs are being tossed out. And I am upset, you know, because that's back when I thought the world was perfectible and simple. And what we had to worry about was card catalogs being tossed out. It wasn't that way. It turned out that it was much worse than card catalogs. So then I met this guy who collected newspapers. He said, forget the card catalogs. We're talking about the complete clean out of American newspapers. Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, you know, the Pulitzer Prize. And that newspaper doesn't exist at the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library, Columbia, Harvard. It's been tossed out everywhere. So that was the moment at which... I became aware of the fact that there were things to write about that were deeply unhappy making. The loss of all that beauty and all that hard work by journalists and then replacing with 35 millimeter microfilm, all that art. And that I became really nuts. And I think that's the problem. That's the risk. When you take on a big problem, 
I'm sure you know this, you get too involved. According to Deb Garrison, <laughs> I wrote a piece about the fact that the San Francisco Public Library sent to landfills a quarter of a million books when they opened a big new building. So, you know, open a big new building, but oh God, it doesn't actually have enough shelf space to hold the existing collection. Lots of money raised secretly. Trucks backing up, actual dump trucks backing up and taking these books off. So I wrote about that. And I was really, and my wife said, you know, you're getting so deep into this. This is too much. And she was so right. And Tina Brown said to Deb Garrison, I just want to find out, is he is, is he getting too invested in this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so what I tried to do with Baseless, to zoom forward, Baseless is an attempt to write a book that's about some unbelievably disturbing things and yet to stay sane, you know, to stay in control of it. And the way I found the only way that I could do that, I don't want to imply that I'm really an unhinged guy, but it's, you know, just sometimes you just get sad. Like when I was writing Human Smoke, I was paralyzed with sadness by the last third of the book. In Baseless, what I did was I just told it as a diary. And that allowed me to talk about my own life. And we'd just gotten these two rescue dogs and they were very lovable and they liked to sleep in our bed and they and they had nice little warm heads and their ears flapped and they were and I was writing about all this insane animal experimentation. Dogs and cats and monkeys and thousands of guinea pigs at a time and I just something so wholesome and restorative about putting your hand on a little dog's head you know so including that in the effort to write about something long ago the daily ebb and flow of just you know making coffee and taking walks and speculating about whether it was going to be a cold day that was what saved me and made it possible for me to um write a book and still be basically upbeat about life that was the effort is you know go into a dark area but see if you can create with this little gyroscope of self enough of the spinning energy of your own life to keep from wobbling off the string Something that I've talked to a lot of journalists about over the last summer is this idea of should a journalist be an activist? Can someone yes. write about something and also be an activist on the cause that they are writing about? And certainly with your writing about libraries, I think it's pretty clear where you stand on that topic. And beyond that, that that was a something that you really cared deeply about and wanted to see a change in how these newspapers and other media were treated archivally. I wonder if that's something that has ever been a conflict in your work? Has it even come up? Did anyone say, hey, you should be more objective about microfiche or anything like that? Like, does the fact that you clearly have emotion about it interplay with the journalistic and research processes you undergo for these books. Well, I remember wondering about that because you see, I never took a journalism class. I don't know how journalism is actually done. I didn't even know what a lead was. I still am a little unclear about <laughs> it. So I think it began the journalism that I wrote first were sort of celebratory things. Like I said, the, history of punctuation. Punctuation is really a, a nifty a gift to civilization and it's worth writing about and everything. But once you get to something unhappy making, I think you have to start with the fact that there's some opinion that the writer brings to it. I I remember thinking I you know, I don't want beautiful things to be destroyed. I think they're things that we see happening and as journalists, you can do two things. And I actually came, I, I was up against this with Double Fold, which is the story of the newspaper destruction. One is to say, I watched it happen. And this sad thing happened, 
And then this sad thing happened. And then it was even sadder when this thing happened. I mean, you don't even have to say sad. You just report the things and everybody goes, oh my God, that's horrible. I'm so sad. The other thing is to say, screw it. The British Library is auctioning off their one-of-a-kind, unique, priceless collection of American newspapers. So let me start with my wife, a nonprofit, and buy those newspapers. You know, And if it turns out that I can write about it, great. But the first thing to do is to save the actual stuff. Then later, do the journalistic thing of explaining what happened. I feel that you've got to let your moods into this. And in Baseless, everything comes out of moods. And that's not allowed in journalism. Even journalism that is very point of viewy, very upset about something, the baseline of unhappiness is constant through the book, right? This is a bad thing. The Brazilian forests are being deforested, and that's a bad thing. But Actually, in life, life is just full of moods. And you're sometimes, you know, just watching a funny sitcom and, and everything is delightful and you're not thinking about And then other times when it's just so, the sadness of something happening is just so overwhelming that, that you almost can't write about it. So I wanted to allow in the moodiness that any historian, I think, feels and suppresses in order to come up with this nicely troweled, beautifully finished, spackled, stucco surface of his or her book. It's not that way. It's a mountain range. There's valleys of shadow. I mean, there's times when, and it always comes out in the introduction, you know, to my dear husband, Tom, my wife, Deb, who walked with me through the terrible pain, the time when I almost abandoned writing this and, you know, kept me going through it. And then where is that time? Is that chapter nine? No, I don't see it there. I don't see it in 10. I don't see it in 11. It's all carefully laid out, beautifully done, brick by brick. There's no mood in the whole thing. Let the moods in. I mean, I know it's dangerous. I know, but I did want to do that. I wanted to try that. As you read significantly contemporaneous newspaper accounts of what the military was up to, both in the lead up to World War II and during the Korean War and afterwards, I'm curious how the way the media covered the military then as opposed to now. I mean, I can't say that other than maybe a few times in high school, I ever really went back and, you know, read an article about World War II that came out during World War II. What was that process like? And what did you learn about covering the military? Uh, that was a, I think that's how it all began. Because when I had these newspapers, bound volumes, big, beautifully bound, they were in stacks. And the Chicago Tribune, I remember, no, let's see, it was the New York Herald Tribune was this locomotive-sized row of stacks about, I guess, about five feet high of volumes. Each stack was one quarter of a year. It was a very prosperous newspaper, the New York Tribune. The New York Herald Tribune, I can't even remember when it merged. I think it was before that. Anyway, I pull, would pull a volume, open it up, thinking, what were people reading in New York City, you know? And I remember opening one, and it was this front-page coverage of a gigantic Nazi rally in 1937 or 38, I think, in Madison Square Garden. Gigantic, hugely attended, chanting, you know, just, and very dispassionately reported, and not, it seemed to me, part of the texture of what admittedly limited things I knew about the years leading up to. I knew that there was an isolationist movement, but I didn't know there was this incredible rally kind of explosion of good feeling towards Nazi Germany that happened in the heart of New York City. You know, 
the newspaper, the thing about the newspaper is it is the most efficient time machine. If you see something on the front page that has a picture and a big headline, beautifully laid out, Herald Tribune had the best designers, I think, you're pulled back in a way to that time more efficiently, I think, than even if you have somebody's collection of letters. I mean, that's helpful too, but this was what editors, copy editors, reporters thought was the most pressing stuff for that day. And it over and over again, I found that just if you just read the goddamn newspaper, you will find out so many things that are are really, I mean, it's hiding in plain sight is not even the word for it. It's not, they're just there. And historians, because, partly because microfilm, the replacement for the actual original newspapers, is such a clumsy, unhappy-making medium, they have not read the newspaper. So the first thing to do, I found, in telling the story of the lead-up to World War II, if you're talking about a certain date, and somebody writes in their diary that such and such happened, is go and see how the newspapers reported that thing and see if there's a rich kind of little kernel of a real moment that you can put down on the page. Something similar happened in in Baseless. In Baseless, actually, I used the newspapers to do a kind of, I thought, <laughs> at the time, very exciting sleuthage, um, <laughs> which was, okay... The germ warriors in Camp Dietrich, as it was called then, it wasn't Fort Dietrich yet, but were cooking up ways to destroy the Soviet wheat crop, naturally. There are too many Russian soldiers we would lose in a total war with Russia because they have a much bigger army. How are we going to win against Russia? Well, we will starve them. So they came up with this fungus of wheat, wheat stem rust, and they had crop scientists, some of them quite famous, a guy named Stakeman from Minnesota, working on ways to weaponize this wheat fungus, wheat stem rust, a very ancient disease, but they came up with the worst killer variety, and then they propagated it, and they came up with a machine called the Cyclone Spore Harvester that would go through an inoculated field and harvest the wheat spores. But the problem is that the wheat fields that they were using were open-air wheat fields. And so you have these sort of vacuum cleaners on wheels going through wheat crops, sucking tiny, infinitesimally light wheat spores into these machines, but some of them become airborne. And they talked about the risk of that, the risk of contamination. What you find, though, from the newspapers is another whole piece of information, which is that in the exact time these wheat stem rust experiments happened in 1949, in the exact time, 1950, 1951, that that was going on, there was a gigantic wheat stem rust epidemic that touched 14 states in the American Midwest. Never the likes had been seen before, and these experts said it just came from nowhere. We had no idea where it came from. And it isn't, it seems to me, a natural epidemic. It was one of these very sudden things. It was basically a lab outbreak. It was science gone wrong. And this is one of the themes in the book. Nothing got me more angry during this book than learning that Lyme disease may have escaped from a laboratory on Long Island because I've just spent my entire summer like terrified, not enjoying nature, ruminating on whether I have Lyme's disease or COVID, and knowing that basically if I continue living here, I will someday get Lyme disease. It's almost a certainty that I'll get Lyme's disease. I get ticks on me almost two or three times a week. And that is not research that I did except to read the oral history of the guy who discovered the spirochetes that cause Lyme disease, named, the guy named Willie Bergdorfer. He was a person employed by the U.S. government to weaponize ticks. He was called the tick surgeon, and he had these little tiny jeweler's tools that he used to dissect ticks, and he figured out ways to infect ticks with diseases. And a lot of his research is still classified. And he discovered the disease, but he also seemed, at least sometimes, 
to indicate that the disease was something that was science gone wrong, was science, an attempt to make a weapon that then escaped from the laboratory. And in Long Island, at the end of Long Island, and there's a beautiful book about this, Lab 257 by Carroll, about the Plum Island Laboratory at the tip of Long Island. That's where it all started, you know? And I am just like you. I am so... Fortunately, we've moved north in Maine. But where we used to live in Maine, constant ticks. We were just talking about this the other day. We would look down on the kitchen floor, and this is so revolting that I... I have to share it with you. <laughs> no, but these have you seen them, right? These things that look like small coffee beans or grapes, and they're fucking, they're ticks that have sucked so much blood that they've actually bloated themselves to the point where they're like Thanksgiving Day floats with little tiny legs vibrating out of them. So, of course, it's unpleasant. So you think, well, the natural world is full of unpleasant things. There's scary snakes and, you know, weird spiders and stuff. But what if it's man-made? What if this was made worse? And over and over again in these documents that just need to be read, there's a report and it says, you know, this is, let's say, during World War II, the germ warfare, and after we attempted to make diseases that were resistant to antibiotics. Okay, that's a, that was one of their goals. And then another goal is to increase the virulence of diseases, the contagiousness, to take a disease that was not transmissible via the airborne route and make it an airborne disease. So, you know, this is what the government was paying people to do all the way up through the end of the 60s. And one of the diseases was a disease of carried by ticks, I think, and we're suffering from it. But there are other diseases, too, that just are very weird that suddenly crop up. Okay, there's one called warthog disease that's now a disease of pigs. It was worked on intensively by the U.S. government. It was experimented on. Pigs were killed by the thousands in order to make better pig-killing diseases. And now pigs are dying of that disease in other countries. Is that a coincidence? It's not that the U.S. deliberately spread it. It's that science, in the end, is fallible and labs have leaks. That's what people have to take in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was always a promise with the Freedom of Information Act that all dirt would eventually come to light. That um, because of the Freedom of Information Act, I thought, well, at least when we wait long enough, we'll know everything. And it becomes very clear when you're reading your book that the opposite is also true, which is that the Freedom of Information Act may reveal a permanent whiteout over a paragraph, and it will never be revealed. And that's certainly looming over the book is the possibility that you won't be able to answer this question. And in fact, no one will be able to answer this question. And we as a species will have to sort of move forward in that uncertainty. And it triggered a memory for me because uh, Seymour Hersh is mentioned in the book, and he was a guest on this show. And he was talking about the bin Laden assassination. And he believes certain things about that. And I've also had uh, Nick Schmidl, who wrote about the bin Laden assassination for The New Yorker, who thinks something different about what happened. And the things that Nick Schmidl wrote about are more or less the official account from the military about what happened. And I thought, wow. 
they're both incredible, convincing writers. While I was in the room with them, I couldn't believe that either of them could be wrong. And <laughs> parts of my nature point me in both directions. Part of my nature is to believe that fringe theories are sort of fringe for a reason and that Occam's razor, Nick Schmidl's account is right. And then also when I look through the history of things that Seymour Hirsch has written about, I would say, I think you said this in the book, actually, they're not all true, but a lot of them are true. And a lot of the ones that were true, the government was saying weren't true at the time. So I'm able to sort of talk myself into both. And I, I guess I wonder, like, how did you know, deal with not knowing whether you would ever know about this Korean War question? That's the beautiful problem is with anything that involves government secrecy, the timeline is very stretched and years go by and still nothing new is released. Sometimes there's attrition, you know, sometimes documents that were released then get reclassified or get destroyed. I mean, I, one of the things I write about is this moment where two guys from the CIA go into work on a Saturday, I think it is, and they, they basically just put a whole bunch of, of the records into the incinerator. And there's always the risk that things get destroyed. I think that in order to deal with the fact that one is not going to know everything, I guess you have to just get serious with yourself and realize that that is the nature of life, but that there's still a lot that can be said, can be learned around the edges. And, and, and I think I actually, I don't want to be, you know, too certain about all this, but I think I did come up with a reasonable account of what happened. Yes. What happened was that in 1950, Japanese germ warriors that had been hired by the United States to figure out diseases and to explain all of the horrible things that they'd done during World War II and had been sheltered from uh, war crimes trials were, I think, used to spread a disease that was spread using feathers in November during the one of the worst moments in the Korean War when the Americans were in just an absolute panicked retreat going down the country. There's this account of people in strange outfits wearing masks with boxes of these feathers, flinging the feathers and telling the guy who saw this to back off. And then, bizarrely enough, a few months later, there was a sudden outcropping of a very unusual disease that had never occurred in Korea before called hemorrhagic fever. It was also called Songo fever because the Japanese had discovered it in China and weaponized it. Okay, so we have those two facts. I think that leads to a strong suspicion that there was a very tiny effort to seed the parallel that cuts North Korea from South Korea with disease so that the North Koreans would catch the disease after the Americans had pulled out. Not proof, but that's the tiny effort that I think is a genuine germ warfare effort. In February of 1952, there was, January and February, there was another effort that was more of a deception operation that was made to, they did, in fact, drop these bizarre, unholy concatenations of bugs, but the bugs were not necessarily tainted with disease. So they scared the heck out of the Chinese, who had actually been the victims of the Japanese germ attacks and experiments. And the net result was to create a panic in China's health uh, network and create this kind of gigantic set of charges that the Americans were spreading germ warfare weapons via insects. The Americans then denied it. And in that case, I think it's much more ambiguous. So I'm just telling you. You don't have to read the book. I was going to say, this is what actually alarm. happened. Yeah, I, I wanted to leave it open so people would buy the book, but now they know about the feathers. It's, uh, it's no incentive to, to purchase. At one point, I made a cover design myself. I wanted a feather on the cover of the book because feathers turn out to be a Japanese method of spreading disease that was appropriated by the Americans. And it was part the way that the 
Russian crops were going to be destroyed was with feather. It's so strange. It's like, as I said in the book, like having a pillow fight with your enemy. And they have these beautiful pictures of turkey feathers, and they show the turkey feather with the disease spores on it. This is in the National Archives. I'm sitting there looking at these pictures, color pictures, feathers with disease spores, feathers without disease spores. And what you're supposed to conclude is you can't tell. It's secret. This is a secret program. This is a way to do something that is plausibly deniable. That's why it's so hard to get at it now, because it's something that, you know, was denied at the time and was totally secret and was never meant to be uncovered by the Freedom of Information Act, which didn't exist then. The Freedom of Information Act only came in in the mid-60s. So they thought this was perma-secrets. They thought they no one would ever know this stuff. And now we're saying, well, we, we have a right to know it. Well, of course we do. But the CIA's perspective, I think the old timers of the CIA, to the extent that any of them are living, are thinking, no. When we did that stuff, nobody had the right to know what we were doing because we were doing what this president wanted us to do in secret. And these things were never supposed to get out. You know, the thing is, to say something so basic as the Central Intelligence Agency in its clandestine arm has done a tremendous amount of harm in the world and absolutely nothing good is a very trite thing to say. It's very commonplace. It's been said thousands of times. So how can you rescue this very important fact from the neglect of its own absolute truth? <laughs> and the only way is by feeding it and nourishing it with specificity and with context and with richness and with newly declassified documents. So that that's what the work of the Freedom of Information Act is to rescue these absolutely important truths about the 20th century from the kind of desiccated, paraphrased form that they quickly assume and to make, make people live through again the inanity and the violence and the real paranoia of the early days of the Cold War. I mean, we have to actually live through it in order to understand how nutty it was and therefore to understand how much damage it could do and therefore to maybe learn from the mistakes, which bizarrely enough, right now, people like Pompeo are making again. It's as if he's going to the old shelves in the CIA and pulling down the, the, bi the three-wing binders and saying, what did they do in Guatemala? Okay, let's try that. You know, it's just as if they're actually thinking that was were the golden years of intervention. Let's try it all again. So if, unless we try to get the secrets out, nothing will stop this cycle of endless repeating of the same mistakes. It's interesting to think of the morality of something like the Freedom of Information Act being such that you may never face charges for something you do, but from a moral perspective, your grandkids will know, find out what you were up to. I think that that is sort of an interesting moral check on the universe that after you're gone, uh, your family will, will find out what you were up to. Well, they may find out. I mean, it depends on how, what the level of secret keeping is at any given time. There, it's just a remarkable amount of stuff that's 60 years old and 70 years old that is still just heavily clamped down on. I wanted to find the name of a sugarcane expert, an expert in growth patterns of sugarcane that the CIA hired at a certain time. And these documents were released under the Freedom of Information Act back in the late 70s, but the documents were all kind of crudely blacked out. The names were blacked out. The affiliations, kind of a, an oil, a black uh, oil crayon, look to the redactions, not professional, sort of, I think, a CIA high up in a big rush for the 
probably just went through and blacked everything out. So you had the record that there was a, an expert in sugarcane was hired by the CIA right around the time in which we now know, because something else has been declassified, that Bobby Kennedy and Lansdale were talking about ways to destroy the Cuban sugar crop. They'd bombed it, they'd burned refineries, but they wanted to do something that would really undermine the Cuban economy, and so they thought we could either infect the sugarcane workers and the, the, the CIA guy said, that's really, we could look into infecting the sugar crop. And then they hired, coincidentally, this expert in sugarcane. And I think I know the name of the guy because there aren't that many experts in sugarcane. But in the, the only surviving document, most of the papers having to do with these experiments that were destroyed by the CIA but these sort of accounting documents have a very limited explanation of what happened. We uh, have hired blank in order from blank, and he will investigate sugarcane, and he doesn't want anything to be traceable back to him, and we will pay him with a cashier's check, blank, blank, blank. And so I, you know, put in a FOIA for that. Said, could you please, you know, declassify the person? I think it's this person, and I think. Uh, he was dead a long time ago, but in any case, and they wrote back saying, unfortunately, those records with the redactions are the only records that survive. So the original records that somebody made a copy of and then oil crayoned over the dates are all that's left, you know? So those names, and there are dozens and dozens of names involved all over American academia, are blacked out. So we will never know what somebody's grandparent did um, for the CIA. I was going to rewind the microfiche back to uh, about 35 years. You're going yeah. up an escalator. You have an idea about how pizza is folded. You write that down, put it in your pocket. Eventually, you get enough things in your pocket. You write the mezzanine. This career you've had since then, it's pretty all over the place. And it feels like you've had a pretty strong urge to write really different books, different approaches to writing itself. Like when I read the stuff you've written for the New Yorker, sometimes I read New Yorker stories and I'm like, oh, that's in the New Yorker style. When I read your New Yorker stories, I go, wow, he let them write that in the New Yorker. I guess I'm curious how you did that. I I, I remember being struck. I took this once I quit the job on the mezzanine, I, I moved out to the West Coast to be with my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Margaret Brentano. And I took the Berkeley Writers Seminar, and Daniel Barthelme was my teacher, New Yorker writer, really kind of surreal, super cool at the time, popular, but his fame starting to wane, and very interesting, very doer kind of guy. But anyway, he said, we're all realists. We're all trying to tell the truth. You know, and if I thought, if this guy can say he's a realist, he's talking about balloons parked over Manhattan, giant, giant balloons. He's talking about the death of God's left the angel in a difficult position. You know, just, he's a surrealist. But he's saying, I'm trying to get at the real nature of what's true about our minds and what's festive and strange and unexpected about our minds. If he can be a realist, I can be a realist. Everything that I want to write in fiction and in nonfiction, which is absolutely as true as I can make it, make it everything is an attempt to sweep off the garage floor and put that rusty bolt on it so that you can look at it and see it just... Everything is an attempt to look at what's there and say, here's this huge, beautiful world with billions of interesting things, but we can only think about one thing at a time. Why would we want to think about this thing? Well, let's look at it. Let's think of it. Let, what, what are the implications? Why, how do people talk about it? How do they hesitate? Why do they not want to talk about it? It's a, gosh, guys, this is a 
big world and I'm excited to be a part of it kind of feeling, I think, basically. Riding the escalator, I remember there was a newsstand. The light is pouring in diagonally. There's glints on everything. Uh, the, the revolving doors down in the kind of mists of the lobby are turning, turning, you know, like some sort of paddle wheel steamer, humans filtering in. I'm halfway up. I look down. There's the newsstand. And I know on the newsstand there's, you know, Forbes and there's fly fishing and there's camera magazines and there's the New Yorker and there's just all this huge, beautiful profusion of journalism. All of that excitement is there just basically if you stalled, if you stopped, if you parked your life at any moment, there's enough to think about for the rest of your life, I guess, is is my feeling. And so what I've always wanted to do is slow down and, you know, write about some usually smallish thing or write about a big thing by using small pieces to make sense of it. What has the pandemic been like for someone who is you're writing about um airborne diseases tell me you're launching a book into this uh unknown what's that been like well as far as launching a book it's incredibly i feel incredibly lucky to be able to publish any book at any time but especially when the world is devastated by this horrendous situation that is just not ending. I think the idea that still a collection of pages with a cover and, you know, it's copy edited, it all happened remotely. It's amazing that it got printed. I, I mean, it is kind of a miracle. And I had very little to do with that. I mean, when I wrote the book, I was writing about stuff that happened a long time ago. Of course, as soon as the actual disease was announced because I'd, I, you know, got 400 pages that are about a lot of different kinds of scientific mishaps and lab leaks. Of course, my thoughts went to a possible human-influenced origin of the coronavirus itself, and I still think that's exceedingly possible, and that it's absolutely ridiculous not to. It's unscientific not to look into possible laboratory origins of a disease that was being intensively investigated by American scientists for 15 years in a gene-splicing, very risky way. And these amped-up diseases that were laboratory-made but were based on natural diseases, bad viruses, were then sent around the world and other scientists looked at them, and they were put in freezers and taken out of freezers and passed through experimental animals by the thousands, uh, humanized mice, and just innumerable experiments involving these radicalized coronaviruses. And it's called gain-of-function research. It was halted, put a stop to during the Obama administration because it was too risky, because American scientists said, this is nuts. Why are you taking bad diseases and making them worse? Then in the late days of the Obama administration, and especially in 2018 under Trump, the very risky experiments resumed. And now here we are in this paralyzing pandemic. I mean, is it not a scientific possibility <laughs> that this is something that someone you know, took something from column A and column B and bat virus here and and came up with something that was more infectious via the respiratory route. This is what gain-of-function research was supposed to be doing, showing how dangerous coronavirus diseases could be and therefore coming up with full-spectrum vaccines against them before the disease appeared. That was the idea. That's what was happening in labs in North Carolina and Texas and, and in Wuhan. So isn't it reasonable to say to every American laboratory and every laboratory all over the world, show us your books. Let's see what experiments you did. 
What gain of function work did you do? What recombinant genetic work did you do with bad viruses in 2018 and 2019 that might have led to a very risky situation developing? I think that's reasonable. And I, I know that it's partly that I've just lived through all kinds of unholy research from the Cold War that was based on weaponizing things. And this is not weaponizing. This is based on the idea of coming up with vaccines, but in a very backdoor way. You know, create a really scary disease in order to show that it's scary and therefore that we need to work on a vaccine, get more funding from the National Institute of Health. That's how it's done. Did it lead to where we are now? I think it's very possible. And I think we should be studying that. Instead, though, anybody who brings this up, the dread phrase is always used, right? You know, conspiracy theories will always be... It's just a reasonable scientific question to ask. And it has nothing to do with Trump's insane ravings about whether or not China is trying to take over the world. None of that. It has to do with fallible scientists in laboratories who got ahead of themselves. I, I guess it's worth saying that even though the words sound good, we need to be prepared in advance. Obviously, we weren't. So we will need to create the diseases that we know are out there but haven't been discovered so that we can now then create vaccines against them. That may sound good and reasonable, but it was actually, as many scientists at the time said in 2014, that's crazy. Don't make really bad diseases worse. If that's the unhappy making side. Right. This thing that you've been thinking about, it seems like most of your life about what happens when you really focus in on the moment. It seems like a lot of people who are being isolated now are almost experiencing that focus for the first time themselves, going through a process sort of like reading one of your early books. You yourself, it seems like, have been living like that way for a long time. But um, as someone who's always cultivated that, what's it like watching the world become more like that, I guess. Well, I, a lot of people want to be occupied. They want to be doing things. They want to go places and be part of something, a group effort. I know the feeling. I want to be part of a group. I mean, I, I don't have any group. The group of people that I would want to be a part of, maybe it would be some magazine, some sort of New Yorker in the sky or something, uh, I just am not part of it. I've never been part of it. And so for me, it doesn't, I, my daily life is that I get up in the morning and I talk to my wife and have some breakfast and go off and do some light <laughs> typing <laughs> and then have some lunch, talk to my wife. You know, maybe the call comes in from one of our children who are grown in the evening, maybe there's a Zoom call with some, you know, former college friends or something, but the texture of my life has changed almost not at all, except that I miss being able to go to coffee shops and sit, or I used to go to friendlies a lot and work, and, you know, that's harder. But I think, of course, I'm sorry. I mean, I live in a tiny town in Maine. We walk around the block. There's no evidence that anything is different. But I, I know also that everything is different, that little restaurants and stores are closing, you know, just winking out one after another, that we're in the midst of a kind of economic corrosion that may be so profound that it will affect us permanently, that this may be the end of the American brand, you know, all sorts of terrible questions. And yet my own life is just there's no difference, but it's. I can see it happening. I can feel it happening, and it's scary. Final question. You said that you never felt like part of a group. And I think that's something I've heard from other writers sometimes. 
And I wonder why you think it's that way and what advice you would give to a young writer who felt like, this is what I want to do with my life, but I, I don't have peers. I don't have a group. I feel like I'm alone. I think the feeling of aloneness, use it. The desire to say something that is true enough that other people note comes from that feeling of being on the outside. At least that's what I tell myself. Sometimes I think, well, you know, the few times I've taught, I've really liked it. I like students. They're interesting. They're full of hope and they want to do stuff and they're smart. And But then, you know, it's just... I get so much more done when I'm off on the edges. Remember this, I think I would say to a journalism student, um, well, first of all, what is this industry? Ha what's happened? I mean, where we've lost American advertising, print ad you know, we're in a crisis, but let's say that everything works out. In the end, I don't care how famous you get, how widely read you are during your lifetime, you're going to be forgotten and you're going to have five or six fans in the end. It's going to be your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren are going to say, oh yeah, you know, he was big. My great-grandfather was a made his living as a journalist, Ray Standard Baker. He was a muckraker. He had a column. He was celebrated. He had a pen name, David Grayson. He got a Pulitzer Prize, all this stuff. Nobody knows who he is now. He's completely forgotten. It doesn't matter how successful you are. So I think the key is write what you actually care about because in the end, you're only doing this for yourself. I mean, it, it might, if you're exceedingly lucky, it could pay the bills, give you a living. But there's no guarantee of that, especially now as the industry changes. So maybe just do your best stuff for yourself and for the three, four, five people who know in the coming century that you ever existed. That's all you need to do. That's a very downbeat thing, isn't it? Uh, Is that downbeat? I think it's sort of inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> it really depends how you read it, I guess. Inspiring slash downbeat. Thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Aaron, it was so much fun to talk to you. You are a master questioner. This episode of the Long Form Podcast, which originally aired September 30th, 2020, was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. Thanks to them. Thanks to everyone who listened. And we'll be back with a new episode next week.